sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 57 of You Don't Have to Yell, which as of this week is the 142nd most popular political podcast in Germany. I'd like to thank all of our listeners in Lower Saxony for making that happen. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. Actually, the only boy of nonpartisan political podcasting. And today, we're going to discuss the issue of branding in politics. Now, almost as soon as Madison Avenue figured out how to use television to market toothpaste, political operatives learned how to package their candidates for this new medium in much the same way. And not only did this provide the amusing side effect of making politicians wear makeup, but it also made campaigning really, really, really more expensive, which resulted in an arms race for cash that has escalated to a $1.6 billion price tag for advertising in the 2016 election cycle. Now, Chara Torres Spellacy, professor of law at Stetson University and fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, outlined the strategies campaigns use to sell their candidates like breakfast cereals and the ways the courts have tried and failed to curb the influence of money in politics in her new book, Political Brands. Now, she joined me to discuss her book and help us understand what we can do to improve our current lot. And to do that, we started off with a delightful story about Santa. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. We're here to talk about your book, Political Brands, which, I, as I said before this, uh, I found uh, fascinating. Um, and we'll, we'll get into why a little later on. The, the thing that jumped out at me is, is how you in, introduce it. And in the beginning, you tell a story about not teaching your son about Santa or trying to not teach your son about Santa, right? Indeed. And when in the before times, when I could actually go on a book tour to places that are not my house, Uh (laughs) uh, I would use the Santa example to explain to my audiences how branding works. So uh, the part with my son is I thought that if my husband and I did not tell our son when he was born, <laughs> that uh, Santa was real, that he wouldn't believe in Santa. We would sort of avoid uh, that particular myth. And what I didn't appreciate is the information silo that my son was in, which included more than me. <laughs> and yes. so it didn't, it didn't matter <laughs> that I never told him that particular lie. The lie was cultural. Uh, the lie was everywhere. It was uh, told by his grandparents. It was told by <laughs> nursery school teachers. And I think the thing that uh, put the nail in the coffin with that myth for him was all of his children's programming, including you know things on PBS, 
told him that Santa was real. Uh, and so it sort of didn't matter what I had said, uh, because that myth is so reinforced by so many pl- places, including weirdly NORAD. <laughs> so yes, NORAD, which is part of the defense department. Um, they track Santa um, every Christmas Eve and then you also have weathermen, uh, like your local meteorologist will uh, often track Santa as well. And so because the information silo that children are in is so curtailed, it's really easy for a myth like that to perpetuate if everyone around the child uh, reinforces it. And one of the things I point out um, when I uh, used to talk about this book in person is the, the only people who tell young children that Santa isn't real is not typically someone like me who was, who was a parent, but rather a older sibling, often in the attempt to make the younger sibling cry. <laughs> and, and at that moment, you have to realize the older sibling who is being a real jerk at that moment <laughs> yeah. uh, is actually telling the younger sibling the truth. But because of the power of the myth that has been repeated um, by all of these different uh, sources, including television, Mm-hmm. It is very easy to discount the person who's actually telling you the truth that Santa isn't real. And I think um, there's a lot to be learned from the way the Santa myth works when we think about how commercial branding works more generally and how political brands work. So if you uh, want to have an effective brand um accepted by an audience. It helps if that audience is in an information silo and it helps if you can perpetuate your myth through a network of trust. Uh, that could be a television network. It could be a radio network. Uh, more often today it's social media. So mm-hmm. if you can get into someone's Twitter feed or Facebook feed, uh, and then it also helps if the people who are telling the truth are easy to dismiss and then it, it also helps if you keep repeating the lie, um, because the more you repeat the myth, the more likely someone is going to mistake it for the truth. Mm. You know, the when I read that, I thought about my daughter's reaction when we came clean with her on it. And this was always a, a big bone of contention between my wife and I, because when I found out when I was in, I was like, I was in the third grade and I asked my mother you know, I just asked her clearly, is Santa real? And she said, what do you think? And that sort of ended it for me. Um, my daughter went on until the fifth grade and had already asked. And my wife was really pro kind of keeping the myth going. And I was very pro, like once they ask, just say no, uh, or, you know, just give them the answer. And so, uh, but there were also other kids in my daughter's grade who believed, so they decided to kind of keep it going, uh, or, or, or it made it easier, I should say, for her to keep it, keep it going despite her own doubts. So finally, when we broke the news to her, first thing she did is she cried. And then the next words out of her mouth were, why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know. My, my, my parents did it to us and we just thought it was a good, and we had, we, I, I had no good answer. I had zero good answers. So, uh, at a bare minimum, 
you've spared yourself that question. I don't know how old your son is, but you've spared yourself that question uh, whenever he comes around. Yeah, I mean, I was very pleased when he was five years old and um, he asked a few uh, pointed and factual questions. Um, probably something along the lines of, we don't have a chimney. How is Santa getting into this house? Yes. <laughs> All the normal questions, <laughs> all the normal questions, right? Like and so, the, at, somewhere along age five, he figured it out. <laughs> well, good. Well, good. Well, you, you've done well there. Um, and so, y- you mentioned some of the key principles of branding there too, which is that uh, something has to be repeated over and over again. Um, it should be sent through a channel of trust. So, either a TV network, folks watch now their social media feed acquaintances, what are some of the other basic principles of branding people should know about before we get into the larger conversation of how that how that's worked in American politics? So one of the weird things about commercial branding uh, is that the more a audience hears a commercial or a commercial message, mm-hmm. the more they are likely to believe it. Because repetition breeds familiarity, and then familiarity breeds trust. Mm -hmm. And what's so weird about that is you could be advertising something like cigarettes, which are, you know, deadly (laughs) and dangerous to you. But, you know, the more that you see the Marlboro man uh, on his horseback uh, smoking and seeming to live his best life, uh, the more it seems plausible that... um, you know, that cigarettes are masculine, that they are healthy, that um, you would have more freedom if only you could smoke. Uh, And that's where I find all of this a little creepy, that uh, just by getting a message repeated, you trust it more. And even if the underlying product which is being advertised is dangerous or bad for you. Mm. Uh, another thing that I think I underappreciated before I started writing this book was uh, the power of using emotion to advertise whether it's a product or a politician, um, because advertisers know that if you can reach someone on an emotional level, they're much more likely to form a lasting memory of whatever you are trying to advertise. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things you, you mentioned in your book and you brought up was the uh, was the Willie Horton ad back during the, the Bush Dukakis era, um, which I found really interesting uh, because the I, I'm a resident of Massachusetts. I actually have a memory dating myself of of Dukakis's run. Um, but the thing that I, I found, and I, I think in your book mentions, it was particularly nefarious about that, is it was very clearly preying off the emotions of uh, white America, for the most part, of their opinion of of black men. I feel like those those messages, that branding often reveals as much about us and our fears as a people, uh, you know, as it does about the the, the motives of, of polit- politicians themselves. Um, now, one of the things you, you you did in your book, too, which I really appreciated is you, um, you know, you, you, you started with a history of, of branding and politics and it, it seems like the, 
the commercial branding didn't really meet up with traditional politics until the television era. Is that correct or am I am I mistaken there? Well, I could see that impression being left um, mm-hmm. the way I structured this book because I focused on Eisenhower through Trump and uh, those are the TV presidents. I mean, there are aspects of commercial branding like uh, you know jingles uh, that predate the television era, mm-hmm. but but I think that um, it's a fitting place to start with Eisenhower because the Eisenhower story I find just in some ways remarkable. So mm-hmm. here's this man who helps win World War II. Then he goes on to be the president of Columbia University, and then he decides to run for president. Mm-hmm. And he brings in Madison Avenue Mad Men, who, you know, we might think of as Mad Men after the, the TV series. Mm-hmm. And the Mad Men, you know, sit down with Ike and do this assessment of him. And they decide that he's a poor communicator. And I just find that so absurd. But in their mind, uh, maybe he was just too long winded. Uh, and so they designed these ads, which were very similar to the commercial ads of the day to sell soap and toothpaste. Mm -hmm. Uh, They make them very short um, so that only one message can get through. They put makeup on the former general and uh, he says these little sound bites. He, they also use a Broadway tune called I like Ike Mm -hmm. uh, as one of their campaign songs. It's very infectious. You can find it on uh, YouTube uh, with some very goofy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the ad is, is like, it, it looks like a comic book, but it was very like, it was catchy. And so uh, there was nothing comparable on the democratic side. Um, the Democrats didn't spend the money for, TV advertisements at the same rate that the Republicans did back in Mm -hmm. the 50s. I mean, it was a new medium. No one was really sure how effective TV was going to be or how easy it was going to be to manipulate people uh, through television. But it it was wildly effective. Uh, And one thing that was sort of true then and is true now, TV advertising time is enormously expensive. And so part of what drives the price of running for office, whether it's um, local, state or federal, is the price of TV time. Mm. And so part of what drives our campaign finance system is the cost of broadcasting television ads to wide audiences during election season. Interesting. Interesting. So if I'm hearing you correctly, prior to that, the cost of campaigning was, let's just call it reasonable by today's standards. And it was really TV that created that inflation or made campaigns so expensive. Is that correct? Yeah, because um, before TV, there was radio, but radio time was less expensive. Mm. And uh, before that, it was really, you know, bunting, uh, renting halls so that you could have big speeches and, uh, you know, bumper stickers and pins like those are your campaign costs but once you add in you know the costs of the television time itself the time uh the cost of production um you know 
bringing in the makeup artists, yeah. <laughs> um, bringing in the cameramen, the sound editors, like the whole spiel. Um, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of that right now as uh, the political conventions are going on. Like there's mm. a lot of production and stagecraft in crafting those messages. Now that tends to be earned media uh, because the networks will still carry most of what the two conventions put out. Um, but outside of earned media, you have to pay for it. Um, so whether you're paying for ads online, which is the new trend, or you're paying for radio or, or television, it, it becomes very pricey to run for office, especially if you're running from a big state or if you're running for federal office. Yeah. You know, interesting fun fact that I learned in one of my earlier episodes back in April, when the income tax was introduced in, during World War II, uh, the federal government actually went out of their way to market it to the public. And do you want to take a guess at who they used to market it? The, it, the income tax? The income <laughs> no, tax. I, I don't know that story. <laughs> they, they marketed, so they had to market the income tax. They had to get it out. You know, it was the first time they had done it. So they enlisted Donald Duck. Yeah. And you could go on YouTube and you could Google this film reel. You know, they showed it in movie theaters where, you know, Donald Duck is part of this piece promoting the virtue of paying the income tax and, you know, how it, and they have like Donald Duck with a Hitler mustache and stuff to show him, you know, how he's fighting the Axis. Uh, yeah, it was, I, I found that absolutely hysterical. Um, and I also learned that his job is actor. So he fills it out on his form. Everybody ah, thinks it's it's, it. it's sailor. He's actually just pretends to be a sailor. Sorry, sorry if I blew anyone. If, sorry if I if I blew the surprise for anyone. You know the the other interesting thing I found was you know so Eisenhower embraces television altogether. His VP totally dismisses it at first. So Richard Nixon in his first run versus JFK really discounts the medium of television as a, as a mode of com, uh, communicating with voters, right? Yeah, so Nixon really evolves on the use of television. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, um, you might think that uh, Nixon would have learned the lesson of Ike's success on t television, that it, it's a medium that can lead to you being one of the most powerful men in the world. But mm -hmm. Nixon did not seem to take that lesson <laughs> uh, from uh, all of this. And uh, instead, though, it's it, it's interesting. One of the things I left out of uh, political brands was the checkers speech. So right as um, Eisenhower is uh, about to be elected, there is this campaign finance scandal that breaks out uh, around Senator then Senator Nixon and this sort of slush fund that he had uh, from some of his political supporters. Now, the campaign finance laws at the time were so lax that Nixon was probably correct that he was within the four corners of the law. Mm -hmm. But when the scandal breaks, he actually gets um, some television time, uh, which they paid for, uh, the campaign paid for. 
uh, to talk to the American public. And he gives his famous checkers speech where he talks about this political fund. And then he says, you know, well, we, what, we did get one thing for free. It was a, a, a little a cocker spaniel that was given to uh, my five-year-old and the girls love him and they named him checkers. So mm -hmm. in that moment, Nixon was actually really effective uh, at using that um, primetime TV moment to save his uh, vice presidential run. But uh, when he runs in 1960 against JFK, he seems to think that television was just sort of a novelty and that the novelty is, is worn off. And so he doesn't take the uh, debates with Kennedy seriously, in part because he thinks Kennedy is a lightweight um, and he's been vice president for the past eight years. But he also, I think, underestimated how um, shallow people can be about yep. appearance. <laughs> and so uh, Nixon doesn't wear makeup uh, during the first debate. And um, so he looks all sweaty and his beard is like his five o'clock shadow is coming in. And there was a huge difference in the perception of that debate, depending on whether you heard it on the radio. If you heard it on the radio, most people thought that Nixon had won that debate. Mm -hmm. But if you watched it on television, you have this, you know, young, um, handsome uh, John F. Kennedy and this sweaty, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ogre-looking Nixon. Mm -hmm. And um, so most people who saw the debate uh, thought that Kennedy had won it. Uh, and Kennedy was also very good at uh, his campaign ads, including one which I thought was very, very interesting, which featured Jacqueline Kennedy, his wife, uh, speaking in Spanish, uh, encouraging Hispanic voters to vote for her husband. I found that one so interesting. I found that one so interesting because it would almost be more depending on political circles, it would almost be more controversial today. Yeah, you're, you're, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, though on the Spanish language front, there was also a, a, a the first Bush also did a Spanish language um, uh, uh, ad and, or he did an ad where he talked about his um, Hispanic grandchildren, which he really does have. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I'm sorry, I, I mixed it up. His son did an ad in Spanish. Um, the elder Bush uh, did a ad sort of surrounded by his, his Hispanic grandchildren. And he talks about how um he won't just be judged um, by history. He'll be judged by his own uh, grandchildren in terms of his policies that he does, which I think is a, a very interesting contrast to the Willie Horton ad, which as we right. were talking about earlier, um, really uh, played on people's racialized fears. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, I didn't even think about that contrast there. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting thread I'm picking up as we're talking here, too, is I, I think it's safe to say there was never like a good old days of politics. I think it's always been probably a, a fairly uh, a fairly dirty business at times. Um, 
But what seems to happen to me, and, and I'll ask for your comment on this, is what seems to happen is, te- is that prior to television, the more unsavory parts of thing, part elements or the areas where you needed to, let's say, uh, stoop down to a lower common denominator were typically done well outside the circle of the candidate. And it almost seems like as television uh, comes to the forefront, uh, these these uh, politicians who uh, tip to to date have not had to be so superficial during campaigning now all of a sudden have to think about how do I look on t- how do I look how do I sound and so on and it seems between Nixon and uh, and Eisenhower's opponent Adlai Stevenson there's this sort of reluctance to stoop down to that level or to sort of debase themselves for being concerned again about appearance, uh, wear makeup, things like that. Do you feel, am I, am I right there or am I, am I off base? Well, I guess one of my conclusions after spending a painful amount of time looking at political ads. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways um, there, there are, um, Years of my life I will never get back that mm-hmm. I have spent, especially uh, listening to Trump speak. Um, but oh. one of the conclusions after watching all of this political advertisement is that you can almost predict who will win a American presidential election when you figure out which of the candidates is more comfortable with being merchandised. And I think Adelaide Stevenson is uh, the earliest example that I have in my book where he does not want to be sold like a bar of soap. And he says mm-hmm. as much. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Eisenhower has his Mad Men doing the little 20 second commercials and his Broadway tune, I Like Ike. And he's, he's, he is willing to be merchandised and mm-hmm. he wins the presidency twice. Um, and then when you look throughout time, you can almost predict who is going to lose because they are not willing to be merchandised in that particular way. Like Dukakis seemed very uncomfortable with uh, television advertising. Uh, same thing with Bob Dole. And Dukakis and, and, and Dole, you know, in their own right, like, you know, Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Dole was a long-term senator. These were serious people who had um, talents that could have been used in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> because they didn't master the medium, uh, they ultimately uh, come up short against opponents who are better at it. Um, and I think you could say similarly with um, Hillary Clinton that uh, she was much less comfortable with merchandising herself compared to Donald Trump, who had had a entire lifetime of marketing the Trump name. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Chara Torres Spellacy. Hey, folks. I hope you're enjoying today's show, and I hope this show is making it clear how much we need real reform in this country. Now, an interesting fact about America's campaign finance system is that it doesn't differ all that much from far less dysfunctional, more stable democracies. 
And it's just that we're the only one that makes it impossible for more than two parties to exist. I've said it a million times before, two-party systems mean you only need to be not as bad as your opponent to win, meaning you can spend more time serving your donors than your constituents without fear of any negative blowback. It's like the electoral equivalent of that game, Would You Rather? Now, we can change that, and to change it, we need to get the word out. So to help, share You Don't Have to Yell with your friends, family, random strangers, if you're that type of person. You can also reach me via the hashtag YDHTY to share ideas and tell me what you're thinking. Now, remember, this country was once just a crazy idea fueled in opposition to a government that was unresponsive to its citizens. And with time, determination, and numbers, we can make real change happen here. Talking about Dukakis, and I guess to to bring folks listening up to speed on if they they aren't familiar with the name, Michael Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts during the 1980s, ran against the first Bush, George H.W., in 1988. Um, The interesting thing about Dukakis is in Massachusetts, he actually was okay with jingles. So there was this whole thing called the Massachusetts Miracle uh, that was effectively uh, his – or that was – how do I put this? It was used to describe uh, the economic boom that happened in Massachusetts when he he took office. Um, another interesting, totally off-topic story. This is a couple of years back. I am sitting in traffic in Boston uh, at a light. Well, a- everywhere in Boston has traffic. There's just no way to avoid it. But so I'm sitting and I look off to my left and there's this kind of green space out next to the road. And there's this guy out there just picking up litter. And he's just out there and I'm looking at him and I finally, it clicks. It was Michael Dukakis. (laughs) It was Michael Dukakis. He actually like, for as aloof as he seemed, he was actually a very, he's a solid guy, you know? I mean, anybody who's going to take their time to pick up litter at, I don't know how old he is now, um, you know, can't, certainly can't be that bad. Um, So now, and so I know after, so Nixon you know, sort of gets stung during uh, his run against JFK. When he comes back in 68, he is all in on the yeah, media, yes. correct? He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so Nixon um, loses the presidency in 60. He loses the governorship of uh, California I think in 62. Hmm. Uh, and then he sort of goes out in the wilderness for a while and is a dejected figure. But then he has one of the great comebacks in all of American political history. He um, decides to embrace the madmen and they run his 1968 campaign in a very clever way. Um, So, a young Roger Ailes, who will later go on to create Fox News, mm-hmm. uh, is the mastermind of the approach. So the approach is basically, we are going to have fake town halls, <laughs> and we will broadcast them. And they will seem more spontaneous than they are to viewers at home. 
We will pack the audience with Nixon supporters. We will pack the stage with Nixon supporters. And then, you know, questions will be uh, lobbed at uh, the candidate, most of which uh, are pre-scripted. Yeah. (laughs) And this makes Nixon look like he is willing to engage with the public because it seems like he's engaging with, you know, audience members and people on the panel and, but it is just basically a ruse. Uh, and he does this, like he goes stop to stop to stop. Uh, and they are broadcast and people sort of fall for it. And one of the things that they miss in um, watching these, you know, basically canned town halls is that Nixon is assiduously avoiding going on any television program or having press conferences where anyone would be able to ask him a real and unscripted question. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in some ways he's incredibly lucky because of the other craziness that is going on in the world in 1968. Yeah. So uh, 1968 is when Martin Luther King is killed. It's when um, Robert Kennedy is killed on the campaign trail uh, right after he wins the uh, California primary. Um, and so there are so many different ways history might have turned out, you know, if RFK had been the primary candidate that he had gone up against, if George Wallace hadn't been in the race. Like, there are all of these confounding factors yeah. which allow Nixon to be successful from an electoral college point of view. He's actually, uh, like many presidents, uh, he does not gain the majority of the voters in, yeah. in the United States, but that's not how we elect our presidents. It's not a plebiscite. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of these confounding factors, and then including his sort of clever press strategy uh, of avoiding all real press, uh, you know, he lands in the White House in 68. Yeah, well, and I guess technically in '69, but he won sure. the election in '68. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and now the interesting thing too is he goes all in his cost balloon, and it's actually his campaign that seems to trigger the first real sort of strong regulations around campaign finance, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> Nixon in his reelection campaign in in 72 it it just becomes like a criminal enterprise like there weren't that many campaign finance laws on the books but he seems to uh manage to break <laughs> like nearly any <laughs> rule that you could think of even the ones that didn't exist or even no. the loose ones they had yeah so for example uh nixon's re-election campaign is uh the committee to re-elect the president which has the awesome acronym creep <laughs> and Great. creep uh had all of these illegal campaign donations that came from two sources one of the sources of illegal campaign funds uh, was from corporate coffers. So corporations were not allowed to give to a presidential election campaign then or now because of a 1907 law called the Tillman Act. So they broke that law. 
Another uh, source of illegal uh, contributions was uh, his one of his fundraisers, uh, his personal lawyer. His name was Herbert Kalmbach. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, ends up with a jail sentence at the end of all of this because he is selling ambassadorships. Uh, and all right. Yeah, U.S. ambassadorships are actually not for sale, so it was not for him to sell them. But you learn a new thing every day. Yes, but uh, <laughs> campaign donors who wanted to be ambassadors to you know, various countries would give creep uh, money, and because that is part of a, an illegal transaction, I, yeah. I deem those contributions to be illegal contributions. The selling ambassadorships is fantastic, by the way. I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see kind of what the going rate was for different spots because I'm sure there'd be some diplomatic. Oh, yeah. And- there was a premium for people who wanted either the Caribbean or Europe. Yeah, I was <laughs> – yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say like uh, like Aruba would be my would be like my pick, you know, like low stress. Maybe every now and then you have to like bail a, a citizen out of the drunk tank, but other than that, things are pretty smooth. Uh, so it's after all that <laughs> happens that uh, Congress decides to take up the issue of campaign finance and starts to build regulations or, or stronger laws around how you can raise money. And, you know, how much you can raise and and what you can use it for. And that also seems to launch the never ending series of legal battles against campaign finance laws uh, that has is stretching on to this very day. Correct. Uh, Yes. So. Watergate, for those of us who are too young, uh, was a break-in at the DNC's uh, national headquarters in the Watergate building during 1972. Uh, Some of the burglars were very quickly linked to the White House, and that prompted uh, investigations by the Washington Post, uh, by uh, criminal prosecutors, and by Congress. And what came out of that investigation of that burglary was that the burglars had been paid for by creep, which again is the committee to reelect the president. Mm-hmm. And, and then people looked at the money that was in creep, including the illegal donations I just uh, noted before. And that um, inspired, you know, members of the public to write to Congress and to demand better campaign finance laws. And during that post Watergate period, one out of four letters from the public to members of Congress was about campaign finance. And uh, Congress finally got the message. They pass uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act. And that was a really comprehensive attempt to overhaul how money in politics works. However, it is uh, quickly challenge uh, in a case called Buckley versus Vallejo, which is decided in 76. And the court in that case does a lot of Solomon splitting the baby. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they decide that contributions are constitutional, but expenditure limits are unconstitutional. Uh, they decide that you can regulate PACs, but you essentially at that point, can't really regulate um, political nonprofits. 
uh, because their major purpose isn't electing candidates. Mm. They And they do all of these sort of split the baby type things. They make a distinction between express advocacy and issue advocacy. Express advocacy is when you are advocating for the election of a federal candidate. Issue advocacy is when you are just talking about a issue of public importance. Mm. And um, from that, um, you get what uh, Justice White sort of rightly predicted in his dissent in Buckley. Uh, You get our elected members of Congress on a fundraising treadmill. Uh, because now the uh, there is no expenditure limit, but there is a limit on contributions coming into campaigns, which means mm-hmm. you have to spend an enormous amount of time and effort fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. And in a, a, a piece I wrote uh, in a law review form called Time Suck, mm-hmm. uh, I wrote about how our members of Congress, especially the freshman members, are essentially uh, told by both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that they need to spend around 30 hours a week on fundraising. So want, they are, they're dialing for dollars. Yeah, I want that point to sink in. 30 hours a week is spent fundraising. And the other thing I think a lot of folks aren't aware of that I know you put in Time Suck, the the, the, the piece you just mentioned, is that the the both major parties have effectively call centers established. They have these boiler rooms nearby the Capitol that these freshman Congress uh, members of Congress and other members of Congress go to to raise funds, right? Yeah. So under federal law, you're not allowed to fundraise uh, on uh, federal property. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, query whether that was just violated yesterday when there yes. was a, uh, a campaign uh, convention event at the White House uh, with President Trump. But that's a different mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put that aside for a moment. Yep. Most of the members of Congress actually take this prohibition quite seriously. And mm-hmm. so instead of calling and asking for funds from their congressional offices, which again would be illegal. Uh, they run across the street and the DNC and the RNC have um, offices within walking distance of the Capitol. And so they run over to do what is you know, colloquially known as call time. Mm-hmm. And so they sit in the boiler room with a list of donors and they just call them one by one by one. Yeah. Um, and I find this an atrocious use of um, a congressperson's time. Hmm. You know, when, when I elect someone to represent me in Congress, I want them, you know, marking up legislation. I want them in hearing rooms. I want them, you know, it would even be better if they were on the floor giving a speech, but instead they're in a dingy office <laughs> cubicle um, begging for money from political donors. Yeah. You know, so as you mentioned, the, you know, laws are, laws are established under, under Nixon. Uh, the Supreme court takes on its first ruling, uh, about what is appropriate and inappropriate in terms of campaign finance. And, you know, one of the other things you did in your book that I really uh, appreciated and kind of gave me a better understanding as to how we've gotten to where we are today is you talk about the difference between the Rehnquist court and the Roberts court in terms of their rulings on campaign finance and their, their opinion on whether political contributions can 
influence politicians. And the Rehnquist court is very much on the side of the idea that campaign contributions ultimately will undermine the credibility or, or, or can undermine trust in elected officials, but could also potentially open the door for corruption, correct? Yes. Uh, there's a huge <laughs> sea change between how the Rehnquist court thinks about corruption and how the Roberts court thinks about corruption. So the Rehnquist court really conceived of corruption as a systemic problem that um, could threaten the integrity of our democratic processes. Mm-hmm. Now, by contrast, uh, our current court, which is the Roberts court, mm-hmm. seems to be defining corruption away or defining it so narrowly that nothing counts. And I think the easiest way of thinking about how the Roberts court thinks about corruption is that it's a personal moral failing. So if you have a politician who is willing to take a literal bribe and change a literal vote, that's all that counts as corruption in the mind of the Roberts court. Mm -hmm. And that is very different than the Rehnquist court, who was very worried about the the extra access that campaign donors got to our elected officials the uh, basically the agenda setting that <clears throat> rich individuals uh, have long enjoyed in Washington. But for the uh, Roberts court, when they see a political donor getting more access, that just seems fine to them. Uh, and they said as much in, in cases like Citizens United and a later case called McCutcheon from 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a lot of the basis for the decisions to water down campaign finance legislation are based in protection of First Amendment rights over the threat of corruption, correct? Yeah. I mean, if we were <clears throat> going back to, uh, I don't know the mid seventies and we were sort of starting from square one with our modern campaign finance. There are a number of ways that the court could have looked at the issue of money in politics. Mm -hmm. Um, They could have looked at it through an equal protection lens, um, which is the way that a lot of voting rights litigation is litigated. It's, it's you, if you're mad about a, a, (laughs) the districts are unequal. One of the things that you will argue to the court is that it violates equal protection. Mm -hmm. So that could have been a a path, but that's a path not taken. Um, There are other parts of the constitution, like the guarantee of a Republic uh, form of government, Mm -hmm. um, Republican form of government rather. And that uh, part of the constitution, the Supreme court has decided is non-justiciable as in you can't hear cases about it so that was sort of foreclosed Mm. and so instead the court looks at campaign finance and money and politics as a subset of the first amendment so it is seen as a combination of freedom to speak so when you make a political ad uh, Mm -hmm. that is speech and when you give a contribution to a 
uh, candidate for office, that is deemed to be your freedom to associate. Um, now, the problem with looking at this through the First Amendment lens is it seems to have gotten the court into a couple of blind alleys. So one blind alley is the Buckley problem that they decide that um, essentially a rich candidate can't corrupt himself. And there's a certain logic to that, I suppose. But mm-hmm. it means that you can have someone like Mike Bloomberg or Tom Steyer spend millions or in the case of Bloomberg, a billion dollars <laughs> um, trying to win public office. And that gives uh, those men quite the uh, leg up on someone who doesn't have that money, though they did not win in the end. So I think at least there's some comfort in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, the court has also, I think, made this weird blunder in Citizens United where they equate the right of a human being to speak with the right of a corporate structure to speak. Hmm. So in Citizens United, they decide that uh, corporations have a constitutional right to spend an unlimited amount of money in politics. Is there any evidence that you've gathered on what impact this has on policymaking? So this is the, um, you know, (laughs) one billion dollar question of does money in politics um, result in different policies in real life and political scientists, you know, spend um, many, (laughs) many a day running regressions. And it is really difficult to tease out in part because often people who have, money, their goal in life is to actually stop legislation. So say there is um, a reform that would deal with student debt or would expand health care. There are corporate interests that want to stop that. And the way that they influence uh, policy outcomes is not just spending during the elections of the campaign finance side, most of the corporate money that goes into politics actually goes into lobbying. And so the, the army of lobbyists costs a lot more than even these very expensive political ads we, we talked about earlier. Um, in part because an election is a finite period. I know it feels like it's a perpetual election, but it it really is a finite period. (laughs) Election day is one day. Yes. Um, but lobbying can go, uh, go on 365 days a year. And if your point as a, uh, corporate lobbyist is to stop a new reform from happening, there are so many choke points that you can try to mobilize. You can make sure that uh, a reform never gets a floor vote. Uh, you can gum it up in committee. Uh, you can add so many weird amendments to a bill that it becomes unpalatable. If you have the president's ear, you can try to get the president to veto it. You can just have Mitch McConnell sit on a bill, which is basically what he has done to a lot of different reforms that have come out of the House over the last two years. And But from the point of view of the political scientist who is looking at 
the money spent in campaigns or the money that's spent on lobbying, it is so difficult to isolate whether a bill was stopped in its tracks for campaign finance reasons because someone, you know, paid someone to someone, uh, paid some money to a particular politician uh, and got that result versus broader trends in politics such that, you know, one party is, um, can tolerate a certain amount of regulation and the other party doesn't want regulation. Uh, So it's very hard to pull out what is just the predilection of particular members of Congress and what is being driven by the donor class. That seems to be where, where I have trouble figuring out how we work our way out of this. Because from what I can see, uh, as much as those in office might lament the amount of time they have to spend fundraising, they're also certainly not going to give it up because effectively it's an arms race uh, against the opposition party to to outraise them. Uh, so when it comes to any regulations restricting their uh, ability to fundraise or their ability to use money, uh, they tend to be reluctant to embrace that. Um, and at the same time, anything that does happen to make it through uh, Congress and and make it into law uh, ultimately can be gutted on the, the idea of freedom of speech. So I, I know you get into... So, you know, you have some policy prescriptions at the 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 end of your book. You know, what are some of the ways we can kind of work our way out of this problem? Well, <laughs> uh, President Trump has been damaging to norms and ethics and laws in all sorts of different dimensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think merely focusing on money and politics won't be enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a part of the reforms we need. But, mm-hmm. you know, post Trump, uh, whether that is in four years or in four months, um, I think we need stronger anti nepotism laws. Like it, it makes no sense to me that we have anti nepotism laws on the books. But, um, you know, his daughter is working for him in the yeah. White House along with uh, his son in law. Um, and so we need nepotism laws that actually stick uh, Mm -hmm. and prevent that type of behavior. We definitely need um, better laws on money and politics, uh, especially ones that uh, offer public financing to candidates for all federal offices, uh, Congress included. And we need to get rid of dark money. Um, There's been a billion dollars of dark money spent um, roughly between Citizens United and today. Uh, We need uh, laws that specify what counts as an emolument. Uh, We have these two parts of the Constitution that for 200 years plus had never been violated by any president. Mm -hmm. And there are very strong arguments that President Trump has violated both emoluments clauses on a nearly daily basis through his entire presidency. And the courts are really struggling with enforcing that part of the Constitution against him, in part because it's nev- they've never had this problem before. Mm. And I think courts are really reluctant to say, you can't keep that money, sir. <laughs> but, you know, we have 
parts of the constitution that basically say you can't keep that money. So we need to yeah. fix that. Um, we, I think we need to revise the Hatch Act uh, to cover the president and vice president. Uh, the Hatch Act keeps um, the average federal employee from using their office for um, political purposes. Mm-hmm. Again, this may have been uh, it violated um, last night uh, when the president used the White House as a backdrop for his political convention. Mm-hmm. Not by it's not a violation for the president. Uh, in, in terms of the Hatch Act, because he is actually exempted from the Hatch Act. But it, it, I think essentially any employee who helped with that event, who was a White House employee, violated the Hatch Act last night. And that is not OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we also really need to revisit the DOJ policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Um, I think we saw the problems with that um, when um, the Mueller report came out and part of the reasoning of the Mueller report for why they don't accuse the president of a crime is that they can't, they can't under DOJ policy. And so Mueller, who I think is actually an honorable man said it would be unfair to accuse someone of a crime where they can't clear their name in court. And mm-hmm. thus they essentially uh, don't accuse uh, the president of crimes when, if you read the entire Mueller report, like I have, there seem to be a number. <laughs> so I'm also hoping that post uh, the Trump presidency, that we have another special prosecutor who looks into some of these issues uh, so that we restore the rule of law, um, because I think one of the greatest tenets of the rule of law is that no one is above the law. And um, I think that it, it, many norms have suffered uh, over the past four years, but I think that's the, mo- the most fundamental one. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like with, with Mueller, he was kind of dancing around the fact that the president couldn't be indicted. And this is again, me as a layman uh, and maybe leaving the door open for when he got out of office. Oh yes. The Uh, Mueller report definitely leaves the door open for uh, future prosecutions uh, mm -hmm. post presidency. It's just a question of whether the, there will be an appetite for that. Like if it's the Biden administration, will there be an appetite to go after the former president. And one of the reasons that gives me a lot of pause that that will ever happen is um, the Obama administration had, you know, a look back at the torture policies by the Bush administration and they didn't prosecute anyone. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that was a mistake and it's a mistake we could make again. Yeah. Yeah. I I'll, I'll ask you this last question. With two things, I'll state up front. Uh, number one, with the understanding, you can punt on this question if you want to. Uh, and number two, I'll with the understanding that anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm I'm not a fan of Trump. Um, looking at this election and getting back to your earlier observation that the one who's more comfortable being merchandised tends to win. How does Trump get beaten? I mean, there's 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 nobody more comfortable being merchandised than this man. Um, do you feel like 
as you look at this election through that lens, do you have an idea as to who's doing a better job in that regard or who's more likely to win? It's, it's a fascinating question. And I'm generally not in the uh, business of prognostication, especially about the outcomes of uh, elections that we are going through right now. Mm. Um, one of the things I would say is um, it has been totally maddening to see some of the things that I wrote about in political brands come to life around the pandemic. And what I mean by that is we have so put ourselves in information silos. We get our news from very slanted sources that please us. We tend to look for opinions that reinforce the opinions that we already have. And I think one of the most depressing things about watching the pandemic unfold has been to watch something that is inherently nonpartisan. A virus could care less whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And yet the branding apparatus from Trump, uh, its first effort was this is a hoax. And not just that, it was a Democratic hoax, according to this president. Um, And then he sort of, when it didn't go away, um, you know, he has done various things to either downplay the severity of the pandemic. He wouldn't wear a mask in public. He made fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask, um, which is just such a basic public health move that could have prevented some of the deaths that we've had from this um, illness. And, um, But I feel like what has happened is that the pandemic itself has fallen into our partisan silos. So if you're in a Republican silo, then it's not that dangerous a virus or there's already a miracle cure or like you're you're just in like a different information um, uh, ecosystem. And then if you're in uh, the Democratic world, then, you know, social distance, wear a mask, <laughs> get tested. Like the, the, um, the language, like it's like we don't even have a shared uh, sense of reality between mm-hmm. these two um, worlds. Now, I think because the virus doesn't give a damn whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, some of the reality of the pandemic is crashing into this Republican silo, including, you know, the death of uh, Herman Cain from coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And I think it's things like that, that may have more of an impact because it's real life and death than all of the efforts by Trump to brand uh, the coronavirus in various ways. Um, And I think the way people perceive this pandemic is going to determine the outcome of this election. And so if you, you know, if you sort of buy into a Republican bubble where it's all getting better and there, but we don't have to do anything to make it um, go away. Um, If you buy into that and you think, you know, the future is wide open and it it, it can only improve. uh, I think you're much more likely to fall for uh, other things that Trump is selling Um, 
But if more, especially uh, independent voters, think this is atrocious, the leadership over the past um, you know seven months has not met the moment, then I think uh, Biden will run away with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think to borrow a phrase, you can't brand your way out of a sunburn. <laughs> Fair enough. So what did Professor Torres Spellacy teach us today, people? First off, it seems the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Rehnquist saw a much stronger connection between campaign contributions by private donors and the potential to corrupt the legislative process, whereas the current court under Roberts has responded with the legal equivalent of a shrug emoji. Now, this is a tricky one because polls indicate support for campaign finance reform is only 80%. So you can understand how it'd be really tough for the Supreme Court to go in line with that. But the other problem is that the laws they'd enact to counter excessive campaign spending would ultimately be gutted by the current Supreme Court under the First Amendment. This aside, the second problem is that branding isn't just about campaign ads anymore. The amount of data available on voters and the ability to use platforms such as Facebook to micro-target them based on very specific interests allows campaigns to market to individual versions of the truth, reinforcing prejudices and outright lies. And I've said this before on this show. Democracy thrives on consensus, and you can't build consensus when everyone's living in their own factual universe and the people they vote for are backing it up. For those interested in diving more into this subject, I would strongly recommend getting Chara's book. The title, again, is Political Brands, and you can find it on Google Play. Next week, we've got Mark Bauer, candidate for Texas's 24th Congressional District. He is running on the ballot as an independent. Now, he was born and raised in a conservative Christian household and left the Republican Party after realizing it didn't align with his religious values. And we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. So I hope you'll join. Per always, editorial guidance is provided by my shepherd, Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off.